Amazon, you can order stuff from there, but they don't actually call to check in to see how you're doing, or if you ate that night, or if your fever's really bad, or if, if you're alone. Um, they don't, but your neighbors do, and your community does, and that's why we recognize, I think, now just how important community is. Doug Griffiths rose to prominence in 2002, becoming the youngest MLA in the Alberta legislature. Eventually, he would join cabinet, but it was on the back roads where he found his voice, helping struggling rural communities navigate the path to vibrancy and a sustainable future. His groundbreaking book, 13 Ways to Kill Your Community, is considered mandatory reading in the 500 communities and counting he has helped along the way, including many on PEI in the Atlantic region. And today, because life is local, is delighted to have author, educator, and community builder, Doug Griffiths, join us in conversation. Right off the top, let me give thanks to our show sponsor, Robin's Donuts, locally owned and operated by noted island businessman Kent Scales, with 13 outlets ready to serve you across PEI. Make sure you drop by Robin's Donuts today. Doug Griffiths, welcome to Because Life is Local. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Uh, it's great to be here, Paul. It's uh, good to catch up and talk to you again. Um, let's get right into it. In, in my experience, 13 Ways to Kill Your Community is the most powerful tool I've seen for analyzing the relative health of a community and what needs to be done to fix it. Um, so why don't we start there? Tell us a little bit about how 13 Ways was born. <laughs> well, believe it or not, uh, so I'm from... Uh, a few small communities in rural Alberta. We farmed at one and I taught in another and lived at the one in between and um, just campaigns, wound up in the provincial government um, working on community building, wrote a rural development strategy because I think building communities is the uh, single most important job on earth. And 13 ways to kill your community was born actually, um, it was like therapy. I was tired of telling people what they needed to do to make their community stronger and watching them do the exact opposite. You know, say, uh, uh, Doug, what do we have to do to keep young people in our community? They're all moving away. But as I spent time in the community, they ran down the community and told young people there's no opportunity here and then wondered why they left. So I wrote 13 Ways to Kill Your Community as much for therapy <laughs> and to purge some frustrations I had as anything else. And it just became a pretty popular book. Well, it's beyond popular. It's beyond a popular book. I mean, in the East Coast, you've, you've, you were the only person to speak at both Georgetown conferences that I was involved with. Um, you know, you can go through the four Atlantic provinces, find communities where it has actually led to transformational change. What resonates? What, what do you think it is the magic about 13 Ways? I, I've wondered that because I've, I mean, I've spoke all over North America. I've been to Kansas to California and Alaska to to uh, um, New York and it just I think I not sound too egotistical but it's what it says to do is it's actually common sense um, and yet the stories that I have have gleaned from my experiences and put into that book um, everyone sees themselves doing that. I mean, the number one comment I get from people after I speak or after they've read the book is, did you write that about us? Because we've done them all. 
Um, and it's all over North America. It's probably all over the world because a lot of it is about human nature um, and the way we approach problems and the way we wind up not actually fixing them because of our mindset. That's going to, I mean, that that's a natural segue into where we stand as a society today. We're in the midst of a four month long and counting pandemic. Um, you know, we've got racial strife from one end of the continent to the other. Um, you know, how, how, do, how do communities, how do individuals, how do governments, how does business try to figure out a path forward out of this? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different, different things they need to do. Um, they, they, need to, they need to stop looking to a federal or a provincial or a state government to come and fix them. Um, of course, there are things that need to be done by them. I think uh, we, because of this pandemic, are going to, if we haven't already, recognized two things. One, um, just how important community is. Um, you know, I say it all the time, and I don't care if they get mad at me, but Amazon, you can order stuff from there, but they don't actually call to check in to see how you're doing, or if you ate that night, or if your fever is really bad, or if, if you're alone. Um, they don't but your neighbors do and your community does. And that's why we recognize, I think now, just how important community is. Um, and the second thing we also recognize now, I think is important, is how important connectivity and being online are and the value that it presents. Um, because you couldn't necessarily walk downtown and go shop in stores. And I, we dealt with a lot of business owners who would say, oh, it's too expensive, it's too time consuming, we don't, we don't have time to do that, except when the pandemic hit and then we could walk downtown and they went online. If they only found Amazon, then you sort of didn't give them an option. And so um, high speed Internet is critical and community is valuable. And so we need to go back to to figuring out how to rebuild communities, not not subdivisions. I'm so tired of communities saying, oh, we're doing great. We've got a new developer here building a subdivision. That's just a housing project. That's not a neighborhood and that's not a community. And that's what people are really craving. Uh, and I think we're going to recognize we need to go back to that. I think a lot of people have, to, to your point, have identified the power of local as something that they want to continue. You know, they want to shop with the local butcher and they want to buy clothes at a local store rather than than Amazon to a certain extent. How do we rebuild our communities so they are attractive? It, it, there, there is no, um, I don't think there is any single answer, but there are some themes that we've recognized in the research we've been doing. And it, it really start with thinking about building a neighborhood. So, I mean, the next generation, millennials have been already for six years since the research really started to find evidence of it have been moving from places like um, Calgary to Strathmore from New York and San Francisco to Boise, Idaho, because they, they want to be uh, on a street where they live, where there is a locally owned brew pub, where there are locally owned restaurants, where there are local yoga studios, where you have social spaces. I mean, again, I go back to, to, we don't recognize the damage that we've done, but we, we moved everyone off Main Street and out of the core and into subdivisions on the edge of town. 
And then at five o'clock when, when they were done working, they went home and they thought, ah, I don't want to go back downtown to have supper. And so the restaurants closed on Main Street and then there was no activity. So the businesses closed and we wonder why our neighborhoods aren't doing well because we quit building neighborhoods. And I mean, we've seen the younger generation craving that more, especially since they can, they can go online and work from anywhere now. I think one of the biggest trends that we we don't realize is that my generation, and I'm 47 years old, we moved to where the jobs were. But now businesses are locating where people want to live. So the jobs are actually moving to, to communities, to neighborhoods. And so I explained to everyone, if your economic development strategy, your desire to attract businesses and grow industry and create jobs, doesn't start with quality of life issues in neighborhoods, then you're going to miss the point and you're ultimately going to miss the boat. It also creates the, the power of one. I mean, I think that's one of the lessons of COVID was if we yeah. lose a job in a small community like Montague, um, that has a, an impact on soccer, on hockey, on Lions clubs. The trickle down effect is, is immense. Um, it's it's fascinating you say that because it almost leads you to think that we should be completely changing our economic development policy. So rather than going for a business or an industry sector, you go for individuals who will be allowed to work and live remotely from whatever company they happen to work for. Yeah, and you know what? I've I'm uh, we still uh, a couple of our client communities that we've worked with have said, oh, we've lost a major industry. We need to rebuild. So we go in and do a, a strategic economic plan for them and we help them along with what they're they're proposing to do. And still I'm still frustrated with one of them because in the end they said, well, we just need to attract a big new business here, a new industry to create 100 jobs and it'll fix our our challenge, except the challenge with most of rural Canada is that everyone who lives in rural Canada um, has a job. There are very few people that don't. Our biggest issue for attracting those industries is we don't have a labor force. And so instead of trying to attract an industry that will employ a hundred that aren't there now, what you need to do is rebuild your population because of neighborhoods. And as that population builds, your workforce will build with it. Um, and the only way you're going to attract those populations is focusing on some of the quality of life and neighborhood stuff, because that's what people are craving. How do you ensure your community's welcoming? I mean, that's the big thing. And, and even in today's environment with what's going on across the country and beyond, I mean, ultimately it, it comes down to seeing everyone as equal and not seeing color, not seeing gender. Um, and a lot of us talk the talk, but we don't necessarily walk the walk. We think we do, but we don't. Yeah, I know. I, I have to admit, I, I think at least every other night for the last few weeks, I've, I've been in tears watching the news and the, how this is transpiring. I just, um, you know, and to hear, I know some people, they don't, they don't realize the, the negativity, you know, the, the saying things like all lives matter, they don't recognize that, you know, we're talking about black lives and indigenous lives that, that um, really, you know, the scoop was done where Aboriginal children were taken from Aboriginal parents and, and adopted off all over North America only happened the last time in 1996. It's not that long ago. And so, um, 
we really need to listen and recognize the, the, the challenges that those other populations are facing. But you know what? Um, it's hard because as soon as you mention that to people, they're like, I'm not racist, even though they have microaggressions that indicate they are. I think one of my favorite lines from a movie, and I can't remember which movie it is, but it's a, it's a white police officer probably in the 70s who, who was trying to get a black man freed from prison for a crime he didn't commit. And they were talking for a minute. And as the white sheriff or police officer is walking out, the black person in jail said to him, are you a racist? And he paused for the longest time. And I remember being a little kid watching it and thinking, he's going to say no and I'll feel better. And he said, yes, I am. But I have hope for my children. And that just recognizing it is one of the hardest things to do. But even if it's not racism that we're talking about, we need to realize that in our communities, we've become so... Um, inward focused and we were made up of these little sub communities someone new comes into town it's really hard for them to feel welcome and to become part of that group because we we don't even recognize we have these little exclusive clubs that we've created and that we're not particularly friendly so instead of you know I, I ask people all the time are you a is your community welcoming and half the audience puts up their hand I look at the other half that didn't and I say well, that's embarrassing. And then I look at the half that, that did and I say, and you're lying because you may be friendly. You may, you know, tell people if they're looking for directions where to go, you might wave at them accidentally because they look like somebody you think you might know. But being welcoming means knocking on their door and saying, hey, how can we help you feel included? What do you need? And doing it relentlessly. I mean, most people don't actually believe we want them to be involved unless we ask them seven times. So it's important uh, that we're relentless in our welcomingness. So is that an individual responsibility, a community responsibility, uh, an organization responsibility? Who does well, the knocking? Yeah, I think I think it takes um, individuals and and organizations. Um, you need um, you know policies and plans put in place by the, the town, by the Chamber of Commerce to deliberately be welcoming. But then you also need individuals to do it too. And when those two, two things come together, that's where you, you create a culture in the community of being welcoming. My wife and I go for walks every single day. I mean, we have time now on this, but we go for a walk down the trails and everyone who's in their backyard, everyone who's in their front yard, every person we pass, we wave and we smile and we say, good morning or hi, or, and you can tell some people are like taken aback, like, oh, hi, hi. But the more we do it, the more other people will start to form the same habit. And pretty soon everyone's saying hi to everyone. And, and if someone new moves into the community, it doesn't matter if you're somebody's going to show up. It'd be great if 50 individuals showed up and said, I'm sorry, I know we're a pretty welcoming place and I might be bothering you now, but just wanted to know you've got young kids. If they're you're looking for someone to take them to the pool, I take my kids every Tuesday, like stuff like that. That's yeah. like, but it's one of those it, guys who talk, talks to people in, a, in an elevator, aren't you? Yes, I am. <laughs> I am. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've never met anyone I couldn't learn something from or who had some interesting story and because I like those stories so much that's what the book is about it's the stories of failure but there's also stories of success in it too that everyone's got some story that makes me go oh that is pretty cool that's pretty neat where you came from or what you what you went through 
and I feel like they make me smarter. Let me say a word of thanks to our sponsor today, Robin's Donuts. There are 13 Robin's Donuts across PEI, serving up the tastiest coffee and baked goods, made fresh daily. Even the eggs on Robin's breakfast sandwiches are fresh cracked, never frozen. In these difficult times, it's important to support those who support you. And owner Ken Scales and his team are second to none in supporting island communities. So make sure you stop by Robin's Donuts today. The swath of, of contacts that you've made throughout North America with 13 Ways, I mean, it just must be a Rolodex that's impressive as hell in terms of exactly what you're saying, um, the, 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 the experience. Who's doing it well? And what do we need to do, you know, from a business perspective, let's say, if you're a small business person and you're in the tourism industry, which is big on PEI, no one would ever say it's safe to assume that the tourism industry will be wiped off the map for a year. So, so how, do you, how do you figure out a path forward? Well, there's all, every place has to find their own path. But, um, and I'm always reluctant to say someone's doing it well. I never name names for communities that screw up, but I'm also reluctant to name names for communities that are doing well, because as soon as you do, people are like, wait, but they have this new problem or it, it, they quit doing it. Two years ago, they said it was success and now they quit doing it. And we were very adamant that there's no such thing as success. There's only success in progress. So if I name any names, it's um, they're they're working on it and it is in progress. Um, but you you never really get there and you're done when it comes to community building. So, I mean, for businesses, I there's quite a few examples, but one of them that I I recently um, identified and and uh, we talked to them uh, was Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. It's a pretty amazing community. It's one of those places where young millennials are wanting to move because they have a really robust main street. They've got businesses that are also experiential. When I went there with my family for a holiday, they had a um, olive oil and, and vinegar place to buy stuff that was custom made, all sorts of flavors. But they, we spent two hours there. They showed us how to make popcorn, how to make soda, how to all out of the, the stuff that they had. And it was cool. They have some tourism stuff with underground tunnels related to um, Chinese who had come uh, for the railroad, but then they lived underground, of course. Um, they had um, their underground tunnel related to, to uh, um, alcohol production and smuggling it into the US during prohibition. And so they've got some really cool stuff there. But they also, um, in the face of this COVID, they had a, a little program that they ran for one day. They just wanted to try it out and it was Ding Dong Ditch. They ran it with um, a social media campaign that covered Instagram and Facebook and um, um, all social media with similar hashtags so they could all connect. And it was Ding Dong Ditch. You called up someplace that had some a couple of showcase items. They'd have it on their Facebook page or on their Instagram account, or you could call and say, what have you got? And they highlighted a few items that were good gifts for someone that was cooped up at home. And I have to look back. It was it was tens of thousands of dollars, fifty or sixty thousand dollars, and I don't know, thirteen hundred items or something crazy like that that were all bought in one day and delivered. So you'd buy it, and then the store would drop it off at someone's door and ring the doorbell, and there it would be because you weren't allowed to. Good example of stuff that like fifty or sixty or seventy thousand dollars circulated in one day to help support local businesses and to help someone else who was cooped up. 
how do we stop when we when we analyze what change we need to bring about how do we stop from sort of reflexively going back to what we did yesterday or last year if you think about the tourism industry for instance i mean our industry provincially is built around one and a half million visitors who fly in who take a cruise ship in who drive across confederation bridge we don't know what the face of tourism is going to be like in terms of what the expectation is of a visitor um, so how do you go about anticipating change i've used the analogy wayne gretzky's famous comment it's it's not where the puck's been it's where it's going or something to that effect yeah. you know how can communities embrace that type of thinking well it it really i mean they have to learn that things are not going to go back to normal they if they were ever really normal um and that's tough because we 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 had an entire generation of complacency built in that was eh, you know things aren't that bad or they're not getting that bad that fast it's that old um sorry the boiling frog analogy you put a, a boiling frog into hot water and it leaps out because it's boiling you put it into lukewarm water and slowly turn it up and because it a, adapts its body temperature to what's going on. It doesn't know. And it just sits there until it boils to death because change happens so slowly in that case. And I, I mean, I don't even know if that would be a real experiment to do, but the point is that um, we built up this air of complacency and that things are okay for now when they get really bad, we'll do something, but we never really recognize when they're really bad. And if anything, um, and I, I know this is controversial, I don't think this pandemic has been that bad for us. Not, not because not, you know, the, the deaths or anything, but think about how much it's woke us up. I, I've said to many people, it would be a horrible shame to go through um, the, the racial conflict with Black Lives Matter and the, the exposure of white racism and supremacy and even white privilege being denied and the pandemic and just think that 2021, we can go back to normal. If we haven't learned anything from it, what a sad state of affairs. And so this gives us a chance to, to say, you know what, we need to let the world know we're here by being online and that what's here is the greatest community ever. And honestly, Paul, PEI is the most magnificent place on earth. The people are amazingly friendly. It is, it is a community. The whole island is just one beautiful community. I, I uh, think um, you guys will do very well out of this as long as you approach the, uh, approach the strategies you have to and what you want to be um, in light of the changes that are, are never going to go away. It's a, it, 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 it affords us an interesting opportunity. I mean, one of the great um, benefits of, of COVID, if you can use that, is I've looked and examined government for 30 years plus, I guess. Um, and invariably, there are institutions where good ideas go to die in sort of the public service. It's really difficult to get things moving through. And what at least the PEI example was very nimble, very responsive. The fear of failure was taken out of the equation, which freed up our public service to do their job and be innovative. And if mistakes were made, well, they said, sorry, it, we, we muffed that up. Here's how we're going to fix it. Yeah. And no one was jumping over government for that. 
And I thought if we can hold on to that as a society and as a, as a, a government, that will be a significant benefit long-term. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, uh, one thing that uh, I get asked all the time, especially by municipal governments is how are we going to make sure we're effective in the future? Cause I have this uh, other presentation called everything's about to change, which is the foundation for a new book, the re-rise of rural communities. And I get asked all the time by municipalities when they hear all the things that are changing, what's coming, they say, how, how are we going to be effective going forward? And I, I tell them all that's the wrong question. It's not about how you're going to be effective. It's how you're going to be relevant because what I see coming is, is people who, who are tired of being afraid, who are tired of, of great ideas going to government to die, who are tired of the incredibly slowness of, of change that comes through government. And this pandemic has taught us, you know what, when we really need to do something we can, and I don't, think people will settle with going back to to uh, micro changes and slow changes. I think they want responsiveness and meaning in government now. And either governments will respond or, or they'll become irrelevant because they'll get passed by a group of people that say, we're going to do things and we're going to do them right now. What uh, What's Doug Griffiths up to now? Uh, let's see. With the... Uh, with, <laughs> Right now, I'm I'm uh, working on that new book, the re-rise of rural communities. I think, uh, I mean, to be honest, it's been slow going for a while because it, it's been so focused on technology and the shifts it create in in values and and the economy and and stuff. But this pandemic has really accelerated it. Not not just because of the chance to write, but because. Um, all the things that are, are changing because of the pandemic were already coming. It's just sped them up. And so it's, um, I'm, I'm going to be done soon enough. I think, um, we're working on the classes I teach at the university for, uh, municipal leaders. Uh, we've had requests from, uh, New Brunswick That's university of Alberta, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Um, I teach one day classes there for municipal leaders. We have six of them, soon to expand to 12. Um, and the idea is um, it's just for those municipal and community leaders. And uh, uh, because we've had requests to do them in New Brunswick and Ontario and Utah, and uh, this has afforded us the opportunity to work on putting them online and make them really dynamic. So they're not boring and dry and just watching a video there. You'll take the class and you'll be able to take what you learned in 45 minutes and go do it in your community and then take the next 45 minute lesson and go do it in your community. So it's kind of like a, a micro 13 ways consulting course. I guess you get to, to go get results in your community. And uh, I don't know, doing lots of reading and lots of long walks with my wife. And then uh, uh, because everybody's home and I used to be a junior high teacher, my boys are 14 and 11. And I also make sure they get all their schoolwork done. So all other kids might be, you know, off their their teacher lives right here so it's uh they haven't quite had quite as much fun but they're they're great boys and have been very helpful they are great guys um tell me where can you find information on your your online courses that you you referenced uh you can find them on our website i think 13ways.ca 13ways.ca they're also available um if you google uh rural municipal leadership 
uh, University of Alberta. They pop up with all the details of the courses for now. Those aren't online. Those are at the university, but I do travel to teach them. But uh, like I said, we're working on an online version so people can take them at their convenience too and still have lots of personal interaction, discussion um, with me and our team about uh, getting results in our community. So um, 13 Ways is doing well, a new book coming out sometime this year. And, uh, probably next year. Probably next year. See, the yeah. editor and me always wants to get it out fast. <laughs> so, do, so do I, but they're like, oh no, it doesn't work that fast. <laughs> um, where do you think, Just I'll, I'll just wrap it up with this, Doug. If you had to guess, where do you think we'll be in six months or a year? Um, what type of change will we see on the community level across Canada? Uh, well, I, I do think over the long term, um, over the next year, we are going to see a, a quite a significant exodus of, um, uh, ironically, people from 18 to 40 and people from 60 to 80 um, moving out of larger urban centers and finding places that offer a quality of life housing that is affordable, walkability, socialization, um, and high-speed connected services so that they can still reach the rest of the world. And it's going to cause a renaissance. Um, that's the name of the book, actually, Renaissance Revolution, the Re-Rise of, of Rural Communities, because I think we're approaching a renaissance. Uh, unfortunately, I think four months from now, um, we may be even more dire straits because I think we're going to have maybe not a second wave. It's probably still the first wave that may rise um, given our proximity to the United States and you know, some jurisdictions even here, they're letting up a bit too soon. And I think um, that could create some challenges. And I, if businesses think the first closure wave was rough, the second wave will be devastating. Um, just because- People yeah. will not be as willing to accept it. No, no, and and you weather one storm when it's when you're weathering it and you're hunkered down, it's 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 good, and there's still some federal programs available. But if everything lightens up and opens up, and then you have to hunker down again, and you've turned around and reinvested your resources in the new inventory, and you get fired up just to have it shut down again, it can can be the final nail in the coffin. So I'm a bit worried about that. But over the long term. Um, you look at all the hotspots for the pandemic around uh, North America, around the world, and they're in dense urban centers. And I think people are going to start looking for those those rural communities with a quality of life where you can still reach out to the rest of the world. And I think over the next 20 years, we're going to see a massive, um, beautiful renaissance in our rural communities. I just hope we're all prepared for it because it will require some investment and some risk, but it will be worth it. Well, if your track record is anything, that's probably the path we're moving down. Doug Griffiths, it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate you uh, joining us on Because Life is Local, episode two. Thanks, Paul. Anytime. I enjoyed being here. Well, that's a wrap for episode two of Because Life is Local. Thanks to Doug Griffiths for joining us. To listen to his podcast, buy his book, or to find out more information, visit 13ways.ca. Thanks to our sponsor, Robin's Donuts. Treat yourself and visit any one of 13 locations across the province. It's never been more important to support businesses that support our island communities. I'm Paul McNeil. Until next time, 
Thanks for listening to Because Life is Local. 